0: listening to The Plugged In Podcast, a project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to The Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens, and joining me today is Dr. Levi Russell. Dr. Russell is an associate teaching professor at the Brandmeier Center for Applied Economics at the University of Kansas. And prior to that, he was the Courtney Institute Professor of Economic Education and Research at Ottawa University. Dr. Russell, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Glad to be here.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I'm excited to have you on. We've been away. It's been a couple months since we've actually put out an episode. So happy to start the year with uh, a great guest. Um, you've written a lot on topics that we cover here at IER, uh, a lot on Net Zero. And uh, one yeah. of the things that you write about in a piece for Real Clear Energy is that Uh, One of the basic insights from economics is that people's actions in a marketplace are a much better indicator of what's going on in their heads than asking them in a poll. And uh, you write, uh, so you write, someone might tell you that, or someone might tell you they like attempts to kill off reliable, inexpensive energy, but when the rubber meets the road, their purchasing decisions say otherwise. So just to start off, uh, can you talk a little bit about how economists sort of view? Uh, people's decisions in the marketplace, and why consumer sovereignty and consumer choice is so important. Because I feel like so many of our energy sort of discussions right now are sort of wrapped up at, in, in this sort of uh, this sort of context of you know who's making a decision—someone here in Washington or or consumers sort of at the individual level.
1: So oftentimes in my my econ classes, you know, I teach. Um, the idea of revealed preference, right? And so I say, you know, hey, look, I, I know it's 8am and you would rather be asleep or, you know, something, you know, working out at the gym or whatever, but you're here. And so it's, that tells me that this is your highest valued uh, use of your time, right? No matter what I asked you, if I asked you in a poll, you'd say something different probably, but you know, the fact that you're here, uh, you know, that says something about the constraints that you live under and all that sort of thing. And so um, you know, we, we can kind of carry that same logic over to the the marketplace in general. And, you know, the choices that people make are indicative of the value that they place on things. And uh, we can talk about opportunity costs and, and all the sort of theoretical stuff that goes into that. But I think where Where that meets up with this idea of consumer sovereignty and all that sort of thing is, um, and and why it's so important is that. People's uh, people's choices are indicative of information that they have and some of that information they can articulate to you, some of that information they can pass on to you in the form of an Excel spreadsheet or a book or something like that. Um, but uh, one of the insights of, of, a, of a very well-known economist, uh, Friedrich Hayek, um, one of his insights um, is this idea that, you know, knowledge is dispersed throughout the economy. Right. Knowledge is uh, uh, scattered and to try to centralize that knowledge is very difficult. Now, you can centralize things that fit in a spreadsheet. You can centralize things that fit in a book. But when I when I talk to this, when I talk to my students about this stuff, I say, look, uh, so I'm sort of joking with them. I say, you know, when, when you learned how to ride a bike, you just got a book from your parents. Right. Like the rest of us did. And it was just a book that said how to ride a bike. And you read that book. And then that's how you learned how to ride a bike. Right. And of course, they look at me like I'm crazy. Right. And they realize what I'm saying is that there's certain kinds of information you can't pass that way. Um, Experience in a job. We can't just put, you know, if I'm if I've had 30 years of experience in some role, I can't just write everything down in a book and pass it to the next person. That's not the way it works. And so that type of information is locked up in people's decisions. And so there's something important about the way they Im- operate in a market, the choices they actually make in a market that's indicative of the costs and benefits uh, of those things. And so this whole idea of sort of rule by experts or um, you know the, the people who are putting policy in place, um, especially places like Transportation Department or EPA or the Energy uh, Department, right? Um, when they're, if they're not listening to the public, really, I mean, obviously we have these silly comment periods that don't matter or whatever, but, um, you know, if they're, if they're not actually paying attention to the choices people make, um, or they're doing their very best to just crush that, um, for some other goal, um, then what they're going to do is make people poor for no reason.
0: Yeah, I had a, uh, a high school student contact me yesterday, actually, and he was just asking some questions about EVs and stuff. And he, he one of the things he asked me was, well, do you think everybody should switch over to electric vehicles? And I think my response was somewhere along the lines of what you're talking about, because what I said was that, you know, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. I I can't judge for any individual, all the trade-offs that go into, you know, a uh, decision to purchase a car, it might be right for some people, you know, obviously there, you know, we, we talk a lot about, um, you know, some of the limitations of electric vehicles and stuff, but we certainly think people should be free to choose them if that's what's best for them. So, it, it it's sort of interesting to, to see the mindset and I think it's really... Um, really pronounced in the energy policy space, this idea where uh, you have a lot of people who think that they know what the best solution is uh, um, uh, for, for certain people's uh, sort of uh, decisions that they want to make in their personal life. And then sort of on top of that, too, you know, a lot of energy policy, there's people who are sort of trying to project like oh well what's going to be the next big technology or you know what are we all going to move right. to and that sort of runs into a similar problem right too where you know they're sort of assuming they know the exact trajectory of how technology is going to develop and stuff and
1: uh, yeah and it's and it's not just a prognostication it's they put they put their foot on the scale not right, a thumb yeah. they put their whole foot on the scale and they say this is the next thing and it has to be this way Um, And so you see people pushing back like SEMA. Uh, which is a which is a big automotive group. You know they push back and the, and their their pushback, which you know uh, you know it is what it is, but it's not quite as strongly worded as I would prefer. But okay. <laughs> but um but you know they talk about technology neutral approaches. And as as y'all have pointed out, and as the Texas Public Policy Foundation has pointed out, right, this definitely is not technology neutral. Right, these policies, mm-hmm. you know the 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 cost of a, of an equivalent unit of energy from an EV to a gas vehicle is is is, is absurdly subsidized right it's like what did they say something like 17 a gallon right um you have this um this uh <laughs> this life cycle analysis that vw did for their vehicles and basically the evs turned out to be the same as the diesels right, yeah. right uh and so they they just sort of shoved that to the side and kind of didn't really want anybody to read that i mean it's kind of funny how um you know so, well it's not really funny it's kind of interesting to see people forecast into the future what they think is going to be the next thing. and that's fine. but the problem is you can't build policy today based on your hope about the future. Uh, you know one of the jokes I saw about like like for instance, battery technology, right you know these um, these batteries can do everything. They can do everything except escape a lab. Right. Uh, We've been told for 10 years. uh, Well, you know, these these batteries are, you know, we're not going to be using lithium anymore and we're going to be doing this and we're going to be using, you know, AC motors and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, yeah, you've been saying that, but it's just it's not happening. And so the the justification for the subsidy is just not there.
0: Yeah, when I started, at IR, one of the things that our founder, Rob Bradley, really encouraged me to do was read uh, a couple of old books. Uh, about sort of energy policy that uh, sort of attempted to make, you know, pronouncements about what would be be going on. And one that really stuck with me, there was a book, Our Energy Future, that came out in, I want to say, the late 70s or so. And it was sort of all the same stuff that we hear today about, you know, solar will obviously be the, you you know, make up most of our energy uh, production and stuff. And when -hmm. when you have a good sense of, you know, just how long people have been projecting these things and, uh, the history of all the policies that they've put in place to try to make it happen, too, and the fact that it still hasn't. Um, and then on top of right. that, you know, th- their failure to perceive sort of like the fracking revolution and new uses for natural mm-hmm. gas, oil, coal, all these things. Sure. It's, uh, it, it's really ast- astonishing, you know, the, the, the way discourse around energy policy sort of goes on because it, no, uh, it doesn't seem like there's any corrective to it.
1: Yeah, it's it's an awful lot of magical thinking. And, and and so the problem, too, is that, you know, that magical thinking is just sort of a joke, like we're talking about, you know, when, back in the 70s, they were saying, you know, uh, I'm sure they were forecasting in the next 20 years, right? Everything's gonna be run on solar. Um, but the problem is, when those things become policy, then all of a sudden, the rubber meets the road, and people in real time, people get poorer, and their lives get harder. And, you know, if people say they, they love, you know, the sort of modern modern civilization and we talk about developing the third world and all of this sort of thing, uh, it's just not going to happen if we're over here shooting ourselves in the foot with uh, energy policy.
0: And going back to your point about revealed preferences, you, you know, what, one of the things that you find out really quickly about, you know, environmental polling and stuff is that people are. are Eager to express, uh, you know, sentiment towards, you know, really aggressive environmental policies and, and uh, action on climate change, but then. Mm-hmm if you present them a poll where you know you give them a few more choices about issues that uh, are more important to them climate change is usually towards the bottom if you ask them how much they want to spend it's like the, la- the last time we ran a poll it was like 10 dollars a year was the median <laughs> response so it, it, uh, and then I, and then obviously just their actions in the world you know people right. you know, want to consume affordable energy that's reliable and
1: ask them, you know how reliable do they want the energy to be at a hospital when they when they show up (laughs) i mean you know one of the things i talk about in uh, i i run i do an energy module um in my my econ class that i teach and um (laughs) i i present them with three things reliability uh you know greenness or carbon neutrality or whatever the term is right some kind of term that way and low cost And I say, which one of these is most important? And I get a lot of green. Yeah. (laughs) And then I say, okay, well, you know, I guess you don't want cell phones because those are really, really energy intensive things. And if, you know, if the industrial base can't rely on the energy, then they're not going to be able to make these expensive devices, right? Or, you know, hospitals can't run without, you know, very secure energy uh, or very reliable energy.
0: I wonder. So, obviously, you know, as a as a professor, you've got a lot of opportunities to speak to young people about sort of economics and what's going on. Uh, I, I would imagine some to some extent, sort of policy wise, it comes up in econ classes. So, yeah. Um, lately, I've noticed that the gap between what people think about energy. And sort of the realities that we've been discussing here has actually shrinking a little bit. I've seen like a, more of a willingness to sort of engage and say like, no, there's actual trade-offs that need to be considered here. Uh, how, how have young people sort of been responding to, to the, our energy issues in your classes and stuff?
1: Yeah, so, so I, I do a, a four-day module. And so the first day uh, I call it energy numeracy and I and I I have them read a, a rather lengthy article by Mark Mills. Um, it's just a couple years old from, I believe, Manhattan Institute that published it. So I have them read that. And I and I talk about, you know, resource, resource availability for a lot of the things that, you know, we need to make up this stuff. And how is steel made? Well, it turns out we use uh, coal right, <laughs> to make yeah. steel, right? Um, and so helping them understand these things. And I, um, this semester, I'm, I'm changing it up a little bit. Um, I've got a, a, a Richard Toll, I don't know if you know who he is, but Richard Toll recently published a a meta-analysis of a bunch of sort of carbon, uh, you know, carbon uh, cost, cost of carbon measures and all this sort of stuff. And it's really interesting to see that, you know, the econometric ones, the most reliable ones are kind of clustered around a dollar per (laughs) tonne. And it's so interesting to see that... um, you know, there, there's so much hysteria and so much hype and it's so political. It's it's a public choice lesson. Right. Um, and so then I talk about I talk about negative prices. I'm like, you know, let's talk about negative prices. How do we get negative prices for energy in Texas? And we talk about subsidies and wind and uh, congestion and all that stuff. And then um, I talk to him about Germany and uh, my goodness, Germany. You know, you can you can look at their their reduction in uh, nuclear Uh, over the last 20 years and in the last several years, their complete phase out of nuclear as of early last year, I think, um, they're using the the average German is using less energy. So again, this is, this has nothing, you know, this is way beyond the promise of, you know, the people who are in the tank for wind and solar, right? This, it's not that the energy is (laughs) less expensive. You know, oh, it's free, it's just sunlight, it's free, right? It's not that it's less expensive and it's not that it's plentiful enough that we all have what we need. In fact, it's it's the total opposite. that's more expensive and it's harder to get. And so we look and, and, and so I kind of I'll, I put all this stuff together. And um, I, I, I made a, a spreadsheet tool uh, relying on some of the most recent research. So um, I know your listeners are probably familiar with LCOE, right? right? Levelized cost of electricity. And, you know, the, the, the attempts at improving that measure, um, you know, system cost or um, even Lazard themselves who, who does it, who do an LCOE um, I think a lot of the, You know, whatever the term is, the Greens were felt really betrayed by Lazard's LCOE the last one because they 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 um, they included all this stuff about what they called firming costs, and then all of a sudden it just sort of blows the whole thing open again, and it's like, well, turns out you know coal and and nuclear are the cheaper ones, and you know wind and solar are super expensive unless you subsidize them, and then you got another paper by Robert E. Dell, uh, I believe at university of Houston has uh, published, I think last year, or the year before In the energy, uh, energy policy. Yeah. Yeah. Energy policy, I think. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, he has this, you know, uh, what does he call it? Uh, full, full system, full system. Laws. Like. Yeah. Full yeah. system. And so it's like, well, okay, what if the entire Texas grid or the entire German grid was, you know, solar or wind or something like that. So I take a lot of these measures and I apply them to the Southwest power pool. So, you know, we, I live in Kansas, we're you know, the Southwest Power Pool is our grid, right. And so I show them what the current mix is, and I show them three households, and the cost of electricity for those three households, and the households have the the intention with the households is to kind of show you um, differences in income, and then the percentage of that income that goes to an energy bill. Right, and or specifically an electricity bill, and so I have a you know a fairly high income you know low six figures, and then I have a really low income one, and then I have a Ku graduate which is fifty five thousand, yeah. <laughs> right, and so um, so I I I put in there and I and I give them options and I say okay now if if our grid was you know nuclear you know how much would it cost. And, you know, if our grid was 100% solar, how much would it cost? Again, based on this other research, Adele's research on, and actually I use Lazard's paper. Um, And so, you know, I I think I'm using the best stuff as far as, you know, the data. And, you know, a lot of them will be, so then I ask them and I say, okay, now that you've looked at this spreadsheet and you've seen how much it costs, because, you know, you put 100% wind in there or 100% solar or 100% wind and solar, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, multiples, Uh, more expensive, you know, three, four times more expensive uh, in the best case, right? Um, And so you do that and you put that in front of them. And I I get a lot of answers. So I say, what's the best mix? I say, what do you think it should be? And, you know, a handful of them, several of them were saying – well, you know, the current mix is fine. And, and, you know, we have what, 38% wind, at least the the data that I'm using, it may be a couple yeah, of years yeah, old for yeah. SPP, but it's like 38% wind, 1% solar, and then, you know, some nuclear, and then a lot of coal, right? Like 31% coal, something like that. Um, and then I say, okay, well, you know, which, which of these scenarios do you think is best? Uh, you know, more, more coal, more nuclear, more wind, whatever. And, um, you know, you get. You get some of them picking like this incremental scenario where like I I added just a skosh more wind and and solar and they're like, see, we're saving the planet and it doesn't cost so much more. And I'm like, see, but nobody's going to think that's enough. Right. If we go to five percent solar, it's that's just going to be an increment. It's like if we if we're at five, we're at 15 because that's the way the subsidies are going to work. So anyway, um, you know, I get uh, but I did. I was surprised, really, how many students said, hey, look, you know, we need nuclear. Or you know things are fine the way they are, or you know I would have no problem with you know coal being where it's at and adding more nuclear and just get rid of, get rid of the thirty eight percent wind because we can all save money. Yeah, and and one of the things I talked to him about is like look this is the this is almost like the least that you will save because if you lower this cost then everything else in your that you're buying also gets cheaper right? And I think it has an impression on some of the students. I think I think the ones that are just already kind of bought in, they're not going to change their mind, right? But I think that it's possible to change their mind if you show them actual data from the studies, because nobody talks about that stuff, right? You, you look at what they're getting, the information they're getting on social media, it is not realistic. It's just ideological sort of pseudo-religious nonsense right and and i'm a religious guy I'm a, I'm a devout catholic you know so i'm not i'm not bashing religion but i'm saying that you can't build your religion around something like that okay um so it it, it is it is i think heartening in, in a lot of ways and i think you're i think you're right that we're getting these examples of germany of you know texas's constant grid problems well yeah because they're shutting off their natural gas yeah. you know the natural gas can't compete so
0: Well, we're fortunate that we have a group of, uh, there are economists and people out there who are sort of working on discussing these issues. And, uh, you know, people who tend to raise concerns in these policy areas, uh, from my experience, tend to be economists. And, uh, you know, there's sort of an overlapping theme with the ones that do. Uh, One thing would be, you know, you mentioned public choice. Public choice is usually sort of not just sort of like a side, you know, issue to them. It's Pretty front and center in their analysis, um, they focus a yeah. lot on on the importance of markets driving sort of innovation and adaptation to uh, to changes in the climate. Um, and then you know you know the work of of people sort of like Julian Simon and his insights about uh, population and uh, and sort of you know human ingenuity and our ability to sort of solve our problems as as we encounter them. Um, you know, how have you arrived at your perspective? I, I would imagine you know some of those things probably sort of overlap with you know your experience, uh, you know, um, coming up in uh, as an economist. Yeah, so I mean,
1: I was I was introduced to public choice uh, fairly early on in my career, um, and and uh, you know, it's it's such a it's such a powerful tool because all we're doing is just considering that, you know, people who operate in these bureaucracies or in these sort of expert panels, right, uh, that they're just humans, right. <laughs> uh, just like everybody else. And they behave just the way they would if they were in, a, you know, some kind of private role or whatever. And, uh, you know, I was, I was recently reading a book on a completely different topic. I was reading uh, George Borjas's uh, We Wanted Workers, And, you know, one of the themes throughout that book is him complaining because ideologues um, with regard to immigration keep telling him to (laughs) to not publish stuff or to not talk about things that that cast doubt on unlimited immigration. Right. And. And so it's like, man, if only – if only we had more people brave enough to say that exact same yeah. thing about something else, namely climate, right? Um, I think Judith Curry's book, recent book on risk, I think it's something like Climate Risk and Uncertainty, um, is fantastic. Uh, you know, this idea of, of thinking about, you know, what, what is it that I don't know that I don't know? Um, and, and thinking about okay, if I implement this policy, are there other things that could go wrong beyond besides just what um, you know I can sort of measure ex ante? Um, but I think so. This might seem strange to you, but as an economist, I think my favorite person in the space is not an economist actually is a philosopher, um, and, and that is um, Alex Epstein. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know this whole concept of um, you know climate mastery of the the only you know the reason that there are so many people on the planet which i think is a wonderful thing um is that we have been able to shield ourselves from the effects of nature right nature is not your buddy nature is incredibly dangerous all by itself and we have with with cheap energy, because of cheap energy, we have made it so that we can shield ourselves. And he talks all the time about um, you know, reductions in deaths from uh, you know uh, weather related disasters and and this sort of thing. Um, and honestly, just you know, heat and cold. I mean, the fact that you can insulate yourself from that in a cheap way, uh, this gets to the, um, the 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 positive externalities of inexpensive, reliable energy that for now, anyway, has to come from (laughs) nuclear coal, natural gas. Um, And if you give that up, the people at the bottom are going to be hurt the most. I think that's one of the funny things. It's like, you know, whenever I, whenever I put this deal in front of my students and they're like, well, you know, we can just, you know, we can have these higher energy prices and then we can just subsidize. And it's like, well, maybe, but you know, but you're working with a lower, a smaller and smaller pie uh, because you're, you're making everything more expensive. And, and uh, so it's um, I really do. I really do think Epstein, um, you know, Judith Curry and, and uh, Roger Pilkey um, doing, doing some great work, reminding people, you know, they, they talk about this, was it business as usual scenario where we're going to get X, Y, Z degrees of warming and stuff. And, and pointing out that, you know, a, a lot of the research is done with sort of very catastrophist assumptions. But again, those those assumptions are there because someone benefits from making those assumptions that way. You know, like Borjas was saying about immigrate, he's going to do his immigration work and whatever the answer is, that's the answer. You know, he's not going to sit here and put some kind of ideological spin on it. Well, the problem is that there's a huge, huge incentive to put that ideological spin on it. And and, you know, Curry's a great example. She's had to, you know, people, oh, you're making all this money now that you left the university. It's like, no, I gave up.
0: She gave up up a pretty big position.
1: (laughs) I gave up up tons of money and prestige. Right. Um, So, yeah, of course, it's the only only the ones that leave that are willing to, you know, at least even to give the slightest. um, You know, what is The, the slightest doubt? um as to the most catastrophic views on this stuff um and i think i think the the Economist. i mean richard toll i don't know what he personally thinks about all this stuff but i mean look you, you look at his work you look at the meta analysis and it's like okay well is this a is this a giant catastrophe and we're all going to die well you know the economics says probably not right. mm-hmm. uh so i think uh, you know i think that gets in the way of a lot of uh rent seeking and and that sort of thing on the public choice side
0: yeah and i would just plug uh uh, Roger Koppel has a book, uh, "Expert Failure," that came out maybe two or three years ago. that okay. is sort of like a public choice look at experts, and you know his his insight is just exactly what you said that you know experts are just people, and uh, you know they're not truth machines; they're subject to incentives and stuff, and kind of goes and, and through. What,
1: and what they're missing is wisdom, honestly. Yeah. Like I think I think the thing is about uh, you know a good friend of mine once told me uh, you know specialization is for insects. And um part of that I think is having such a narrow focus on something makes it really hard for you to understand the big picture and thus to understand the trade-offs, right? This is why um, you know, we have experts in uh, you know, advising policymakers, but those policymakers, we want them to be wise people who understand the, the whole thing, not just one small element of it.
0: Yeah, you'll see a lot in, in sort of congressional hearings. You'll you'll see an expert witness who obviously has a ton of knowledge in a very like narrow field. But then, like if you're thinking about just like, well, is this even gonna be practical to implement, or like even politically, yeah. is anyone gonna be interested in this? Like, it, there's no uh, no no real concern to any of that stuff. So it's all, right. all always interesting uh, to sort of hear. To see the 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 way that academics and and politics uh, w- when they come together, the the, um, the I guess from my perspective at least, uh, the not so helpful <laughs> uh, results of, yeah. of, of some of that. But uh, for sure. Um, so before you were at Kansas, you were at the Gwartney Institute, which is actually how this podcast kind of came together. I, I heard you on the. Uh, their their podcast in december you were talking about uh, a bunch of energy issues um james courtney was an interesting guy and unfortunately he, he just passed away um you know he's, he was known for the freedom of the world index <laughs> and uh you know environmental quality is sort of one of the things that comes out of that index that we've talked a, about on uh on our podcast a little bit um you talk a little bit about uh james courtney i, I guess and um uh, you know, did he do any other work on, on energy stuff? I, I don't, don't know the answer to that actually.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, and I, and I don't know, um, you know, I, I know one of the authors on that, uh, on that project, but I'm not exactly sure how much, I, I don't really know much about the environmental quality aspects of that. Um, uh, I did get to meet Jim, uh, when he, when I was there, um, but uh, we weren't really talking about energy and and that sort of thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I usually just like to give. Uh, there's a you know there's a whole reading list of of people in sort of the the free market space that uh, that. Yeah. People always don't have access to in classes and stuff, so uh, you know. Uh, for sure, Courtney's work is, is important. And I actually, I, I was home a couple of years ago and I was cleaning out my textbooks from college, and didn't realize it, but the Stroop and Courtney book was the, was used in my micro class. So, and I had never known him, but he had an impact on me.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a, I think it's a fairly popular one for for intro and and still published, I think. Yep. Yeah.
0: Um. So. Uh, last topic that I want to hit with you just uh, in the news recently uh, a big proposal that's looking at adding uh, carbon tariffs to imported goods here in the US mm-hmm. and they're sort of at the initial right. stages the the Prove it act is really just uh, the first step where they're trying to look at they're trying to get approval to measure the carbon intensity of imported products but they have another bill that's you know al- already been introduced that's uh, trying to uh, create the actual tariffs. So it seems pretty clear, you know, what their intentions are here. Um, From your perspective, just sort of an economist, you know, uh, sort of like pollution pricing is always a big topic that comes up in policy circles, but uh, like environmental tariffs is kind of a different way about going about that and I know the history of sort of tariff policy is sort of ripe with, uh, you know, rent sinking. It always just sort of become, becomes a political disaster. Uh, what are your thoughts on sort of environmental tariffs and what it means for sort of free trade and, and these sorts of things?
1: so yes, I should... I should say at the get-go that, I mean, personally, I really don't, I guess from an economic standpoint that informs my perspective on it, but um, I really don't think tariffs are necessarily a bad idea. Um, I think they are, uh, uh, can have sensible trade-offs, you know, recognizing that there is a trade-off, though. um, And I think they are good for certain things. And it's it's interesting to see um, that well, and again, I th- I think this comes from a, from a sort of public choice angle, right? It's like we're gonna, you know, it, it, the people who are interested in getting uh, sort of any any climate policy that they can possibly get in uh, passed, it's just sort of them trying every, you know, sort of shotgun approach. They're trying everything they can. Um, I think this is a really poor way to base your a really poor method of basing your tariff policy. So, um I think you, you should you should focus on things that you can measure so that you can actually measure the 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 trade-offs. Um, and you know if you look at if you look at Richard Toll's uh, meta-analysis of you know the like the social cost of carbon, you know the range is pretty wide. Um from negative, you know, 300 and some dollars a ton to positive 500 dollars a ton. And, you know, that is much so that is much more doubtful uh, than, okay. we can make sure that there are factories in the United States and that people can work in those factories and earn something uh, of a wage that they can live on. Now that I can measure, right, that I can figure out that I can understand and get my head around pretty easily and of course, there are always going to be things I can't count and I can't measure and I can't foresee. But it's so much it's such a it's so much a, a better basis for policy than, you know, something like climate. Now, I i, I would say, you know, it's certainly the case um, that there are, you know, there are there are certainly concerns, I think, with um you know, how do you, uh, how do you treat other countries when their uh, regulatory standards aren't up to snuff, right? Well, this is not an easy question to solve because, you know, uh, environmental um, concerns are a sort of wealth uh, indicator, right? Once you've solved actual problems, then you start worrying about All these other tiny little things in the grand scheme, uh, like my carbon footprint or something. Right. Um, And so if you were talking about, you know, Bangladesh or something, well, you know, maybe we let them figure out how to, um, you know, provide a sensible uh, living for people before we start just crushing them with tariffs, right? Because I, I grant that, you know, if, I, if we if the U.S. puts up a tariff, uh, you know, that's going to make it more difficult to trade with another country, which is going to limit their economic prospects, certainly, right? But from my point of view, the U.S. government has its first um, obligation to the U.S., to to its own citizens. And so um this is I think a very poor way to um to base your your tariff policy. It's um there's I don't think there's a great way to measure exactly what the benefit of this sort of thing is and um, it just opens the door to the most, uh, you know, draconian, authoritarian, whatever term you want to use, the most ridiculous um, policies that are just going to make people poor. Um, and it, it's I think politically it's a it's a dumb uh, choice to go with this. And I think um, we will all be better off if it just goes away.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean w- one of the concerns I guess I have is uh you know, when you look at the history of tariff policy in the US, it usually starts with a very well-meaning well-intentioned idea and there's occasionally a good justification, maybe a lot of times it's national security related and stuff. But then what you end up seeing is oftentimes there's carve outs for some people or some products get the tariff others don't and it and it becomes yeah. you know sort of ineffective and um, so it'll be in- interesting right. to see how it develops. I, I've uh, spent some time in my my career in Washington uh, working on carbon tax issues and one of the points I've made is that you know I mean it, it's a sort of blackboard example of a carbon tax you know nobody's denying that, that, you know, that would be an effective way to reduce emissions by, you know, sort of artificially raising the price, right? But the way that that actually gets implemented once it goes... Once it has to go through the political process, is going to be very different than what you draw up on the blackboard. And so, you know, I, I'm, kind yeah, of, it, I, I'm kind of pointing out that, well, the only way that we're getting a carbon tax is actually a carbon tariff that is, uh, you know, only going to be uh, applied to some companies, not others, some countries, not others and –
1: well, and and you know this, you know this better than I do, uh, you know the idea that the idea that there's a zero emissions vehicle, right? right. Uh, I mean, this is this was a popular thing. Uh, I don't know if it's still like you know the from the factory, the cars would come with a little sticker, right? It says exactly. PZEV, right? I mean, this is just silly, right? Uh nobody wants to do they always say tailpipe emissions. Well, yeah. If you make a car without a tailpipe, then we just ignore the other emissions, you know. And so of course, you know, this sort of thing, like you're saying, is only going to get applied in certain ways. And of course, whoever's the sort of favorable one at that time, uh, you know, is going to get skipped over. And so of course the electric vehicles are gonna get ignored and um so, yeah, uh, it seems like the the theory of a tariff might be uh, much 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 better than uh and, and even as as dubious and bad as that might be, just the theory itself, the applications even worse.
0: <laughs> okay, great. I uh I don't have anything else for you, but I really appreciate your time today. Um Thanks. Is there anything that we haven't talked about energy-wise that, you know, you want you wanted to get in? And then uh, I just wanted to give you a chance to plug any projects or anything that you're working on uh, and where people can go to find you.
1: Yeah. So uh, I appreciate that. I'm uh... – I'm, if, if you want to see my stuff, usually um, if I'm writing on something uh, kind of sort of economics journalism wise, um, it's going to be in real clear, uh, real clear energy. Uh, sometimes real cool markets will pick up something if I, if I, uh, uh, if it kind of goes viral or whatever. Um, my website is LeviRussell.com. If you, you can go look at all my stuff on there, articles that never made it to print or whatever. And then, and then a list of all the stuff that I write about. Um So, yeah, there you go.
0: Great. Yeah, I'll plug all that stuff in the show notes. Uh, Our guest today has been Dr. Levi Russell from the University of Kansas. Dr. Russell, thanks for joining the show today.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you.